Okay, we need to jump right into this. I am definitely going to run out of time. So this is a review of Daniel 1 through 9. I've put it in a handout, which I hope will be really helpful for you to save. Few things are more important than grasping context in Bible study. One of the pretty much absolute rules of Bible study that you can know for sure is the, the more familiar you are with what's around a particular passage, the better you'll be able to understand that particular passage. That's just always going to be true in Bible study. So we keep trying to make sure we're kind of following the flow of Daniel. So this is not, this is not like an introduction to Daniel 1 through 9. This is a review for us. So hopefully along the way, you'll have lots of moments that are like, oh, right, right, I remember talking about that. It's that kind of a review. So let's just jump right in and see how far we can make it. Now, what you have listed on here is all the sermons. And you'll notice that there's a little number after them. That number is just for me. That's how I keep track of the order that it went in. But I also included the date and the title. That makes it easy for you to go look them up if you want to watch them, listen to them, sermon audio, YouTube, uh, through our church website, etc. So that's why I gave you that information. So we started February 6th talking about the Bible's most unusual prophet. And, you know, he was a young teen, important family in Jerusalem. It says he was strong and handsome and smart and gifted. He saw Jerusalem fall, was taken captive to Babylon, 600 miles to the east, served in the Babylonian Persian governments until his 80s. And he was a prophet, though his day job was government. When did this happen? This is about 600 years before Jesus at the time of the most devastating events up to that point in Israel's history. Every visible expression of Israel's very existence collapsed. That's what Daniel lived through. What's the point? As we've said repeatedly, the purpose is to guide, comfort, and prepare the people of God as they live under the authority of the world's political powers until Jesus comes again. So as we said it back then, how can we be faithful and fruitful when the world is on fire? Then we talked about Daniel, Jesus, and the future of God's people, just mentioning the critics who say Daniel can't possibly have been written when Daniel lived because there's so many amazing prophecies. We noted that Hebrew, that chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. There's a little bit of Aramaic, one other place in, in Ezra, but this is the only part of the Old Testament that where the author wrote it in Aramaic. And we don't know exactly why, but we do know that Aramaic was the trade language and the governmental language of the world then. And so this part that was written in Aramaic would have been readable by pretty much anybody in any palace in the world. And so it may remind us that this is not just a message to Israel like some of the other prophets. This is really a message to the, to the palaces of the world. And then we talked about Jesus and Daniel and how the whole book points to Jesus and Jesus may make several earthly appearances the book directly prophesies about Jesus. One of the interesting things is that Jesus would have read and studied it, right? As a Jewish boy growing up in Israel, Jesus quoted Daniel. Jesus taught about the big themes in Daniel. Jesus applied Daniel to future events. So lots of connections to Jesus. And then we talked about Jesus, Daniel and the future of God's people. So there's this dual thing going on in Daniel. Daniel is written to the Jewish people in the midst of suffering to help them in that suffering. It's also written about future suffering 
to help future people in suffering. And so it is for the suffering people of God, for suffering believers to prepare believers for suffering, to get them ready for what's, what's coming. And then we started into chapter 1 and the background to the time of Daniel. By the way, if you don't have your Bible open, you might just want to flip along as I go here. Um, so Daniel, not that I'm going to look at a lot of, point you to a lot of references, they'll be in the handout, but in case you want to follow along. Daniel 1.1, Israel's taken into exile. Daniel was in exile. And for the 800 years before this, God had been warning them about exile. 800 years of patient warnings. But they refused to listen. They kept loving the world from Moses all the way through all the prophets. And one of the really interesting things we talked about is that one of the last prophets they decided to reject was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah would have been in Jerusalem when Daniel was a boy growing up there. And so it's quite likely that Daniel actually heard Jeremiah preach on the streets of Jerusalem, watched his people scorn Jeremiah, and then watched the exile come and was in exile himself. That's amazing. Then we talked about hope in the darkest storm. And this was about Israel's fall to Babylon. How horrible it was, how complete it was, and yet the hope that was there. So you see on your handout, we talked about national conquest. There was a siege that ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem. The king was given into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And there was exile. It was a complete wiping out of their national identity. But Israel's most important identity wasn't national, it was spiritual. And so that's what made it even worse, because at least outwardly, this looked like a huge spiritual defeat. Nebuchadnezzar and his gods beat Yahweh. How do you know? Because they took down his temple and they stole all his stuff and they took it back to Babylon. So obviously we won. Now we know that wasn't the real story, right? But at least outwardly, it looked like a spiritual conquest. And yet there is hope despite conquest, because verse 2 says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. It's the Hebrew word Adonai for the sovereign ruler. The true sovereign ruler actually handed Israel's king over to Babylon. God was doing what he wanted to do. So there was hope. Then we talked about Daniel and a determined heart in a defiling world. The world wants to pressure you into conformity. And we can see that in the way that Nebuchadnezzar treated some of these young men that he brought to Babylon. He wanted to change them into Babylonians. Educational agenda, physical agenda, identity agenda. Make them think like Babylonians. Make them talk like Babylonians. Make them live like Babylonians. Give them the good stuff of Babylon so that they'll love it. And maybe they'll start to even think of themselves not as Jews, but as Babylonians. That's what they tried to do. But chapter 1, verse 8 says that Daniel resolved. Literally, he set it upon his heart that he was not going to defile himself. It was something in his heart that made all the difference when he was under all that pressure. It was a love for God. 
And as a result, he was wise. So we talked about wise living in a defiling world because chapter 1 emphasizes his wisdom all the way to chapter 12. Wisdom is a big emphasis in this book. When the world is on fire and you're going through stuff you've never gone through before, you need God to make you wise to know what to do. And so God made Daniel wise despite the defilement around him. We've called it Babylon Palace High School that Daniel went to there. And that was a terrible place for a young man who loved God. And yet, there, God made Daniel wise. And one of the things we learned from that story is that defilement around us and defilement in us are not the same thing. We should never choose to expose ourselves to defiling things, but sometimes we have no choice about it, just like Daniel had no choice about it. And yet, God was able to keep him faithful and make him wise um, even in that situation. And God gave him the wisdom to discern what would cause defilement in him. So from everything I can see, the king's meat and drink were not unlawful for Daniel, at least some of it. That, that wasn't the reason why he, he didn't take, he didn't eat those things. He discerned that there was an agenda here to get him to fall in love with Babylon and to be a Babylonian. And he realized, I've got to draw the line here. I have got to take a stand on this. And so it reminds us that when we're in very difficult situations that we've never faced before, God can give us the wisdom to know when we have to stand, when it's not clear. Then as we continue on in chapter 1, we talked about God's quiet triumphs. Remember the phrase that's three times in Daniel 1, God gave. God gave the king over. God gave Daniel favor in the palace God gave Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. In three very different ways, we see the sovereign hand of God quietly at work. Later in the book, God works in some pretty loud ways, right? Like writing on the wall with a hand. But early in the book, God's just as much at work. It's just quiet. Nebuchadnezzar didn't even know that it was going on. And the last verse of chapter 1, remember this awesome verse? Chapter 1, verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of, of King Cyrus. Not a verse you ever memorized in Sunday school, but such a fantastic verse because it shows us that God had his man planted right where he wanted him and he was going to be there just as long as God wanted him there. He was even going to outlast the Babylonian Empire in the palace. So it's pretty cool. Then into chapter 2. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And he thought that his dreams were omens about the future, so he had to know what this dream meant. But all the wise men in his kingdom couldn't help him. And look what they told him in chapter 2, verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. So they were basically saying, look, king, the gods aren't here, and the gods don't tell us what they know. So we're stuck. And so we just spent a week celebrating Jesus, who is God in the flesh, here with us, who speaks the truth and reveals the wisdom of God. And we don't have to stumble in the darkness of the world's nonsense, the world's wisdom any longer. Now then, what happened next is Nebuchadnezzar was really mad that no one could tell his dream and he was going to have them all killed, including Daniel and his friends. But Daniel went straight to those friends, which reminds us of the importance of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they prayed. And they were so sure God was going to answer their prayers 
that they praised God for answering their prayers before God answered the prayers. And then Daniel went to Nebuchadnezzar. Now remember, he's got a death sentence on him right then, right? And he shows up before Nebuchadnezzar and what's the first thing he does? It's not interpret the dream for him. The first thing he does is spend a while telling him how awesome God is. And then he gets around to interpreting the dream for him, which is pretty cool. The dream was of a huge statue. So number 10, we talked about towering, tumbling world powers. This huge, impressive statue in the dream made of a sequence of materials. They predict if we follow him down the statue, they predict a sequence of four kingdoms beginning with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. In some ways, as they go down, they get more and more inferior. In other ways, they get stronger till the very bottom. The fourth kingdom is especially strong. It crushes the others. But then it falls apart and a stone is miraculously carved out of a mountain and comes flying at the statue and strikes its feet and pulverizes it. It's gone and it blows away and there's not a speck of it left. What's left is the stone, which grows into a mountain, filling the earth. And that's the kingdom of God that will stand forever. Chapter 2, verse 28, the God in heaven has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So it's easy to think of Daniel. Remember, it's easy to think of it as a book with two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 are the story of Daniel, and chapters 7 through 12 are the prophecies. But actually, all the prophecies begin in chapter 2, and everything else later in the book connects back to this dream in chapter 2, which is where the prophecies really begin. Then in uh, number 11, we talked about just a number of lessons about human governments that we can learn from that statue and the sequence of kingdoms. Uh, I'm not going to go through that list right now. I think it's written out on your handout. And then in number 12, we talked about, we asked the question, what are these four kingdoms? And I'm not really going to review that now because we've taught, we've learned so much since then um, that that sermon's a little out of date just because it was preliminary and now we've learned a lot. But basically the four kingdoms are probably uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. How are we doing so far? Breath? Number 13. All right. What happened next in the story? So Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar the dream and its interpretations, and we would expect Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself and worship God. And he did kind of worship Daniel, and he said nice things about Daniel's God. But the very next thing we're told in chapter 3 is that Nebuchadnezzar made a giant image, likely that statue of himself that we talked about this morning. So he went from worshiping Daniel and saying nice things about Daniel's God to making everybody worship basically himself. <laughs> and so we talked about the, the arrogancy and the idolatry that, will, that just always characterizes human rulers, right? It did back then, it does today, it always will. And so then all the people were called to come worship that statue. And there was the fiery furnace for those who refused. For some reason, Daniel wasn't there. But these other Jewish friends of his were, and they refused to worship this idol. And Nebuchadnezzar brought him in, and he thought he could just kind of sweet-talk him and get him to go bow down. And they stood very courageously before him and made it clear that they were not going to bow down to any gods, any golden image. They made it clear that their God was able to deliver them from a burning furnace. And even if their God chose, not to, chose not to deliver them, they still weren't going to worship. So Nebuchadnezzar was furious and threw him into the furnace and and God worked an incredible miracle, a twofold miracle, right? 
First part of the miracle was they survived and came out of that furnace unscathed. What was the other part of the miracle? Somebody was in there with them. Maybe another pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Don't know. So a lot we could say about that story, but we emphasize the call to loyal love for God at any cost and the reminder of the loyal love of our God for us. See Daniel 3.28? They have that phrase on there. They trusted in him, just like Eric emphasized in our song service this morning. We are loyal to God because God is so loyal to us. Babylon couldn't wipe out the people of God. Nobody can wipe out the people of God because God is faithful to his promises and his people. He might deliver us from the fiery furnace. He might not deliver us from the fiery furnace. He's still going to, be, he's still going to keep every promise to us. And so our loyalty to him is because of his loyalty to us. All right, on to chapter 4, where the story takes a very startling turn because God shows mercy to the guy who just built the big idolatrous statue and tried to burn up God's kids, God's children. And it's the same guy who destroyed the temple and looted it and brought it back and then started killing Jewish people who wouldn't worship him. And in chapter 4, God shows him mercy. God chases him down so that he can show mercy to him. Brought him so low that he, was, he thought he was an animal. He lived like an animal. But it worked. God brought him to his spiritual senses and he was restored as king. We can't know for certain if Nebuchadnezzar came to God in saving faith. But we know that God mercifully pursued him because God loves to lavish his grace on humble people, even humble emperors. It's a beautiful part of the story, chapter 4. And there in Nebuchadnezzar's words at the end of chapter 4, once he had learned who God really is, we have some words that may be the centerpiece of the whole book, chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So that brings us to the end of chapter four and chapter five jumps ahead. So all that was earlier in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Chapter 5 jumps past Nebuchadnezzar. It's about 20 years before the last ruler of Babylon, and it takes us all the way to the last night of the Babylonian Empire. Remember, God said Babylon was just the golden head in the statue, and it was going to get replaced by somebody else. The last ruler was Belshazzar. He might have been Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, but sadly, he didn't learn any of the humility lessons Nebuchadnezzar learned. And so he was having this blasphemous party and uh, we preached an evangelistic sermon from the story of the handwriting on the wall and uh, talked about how there's handwriting on the wall for all of us. God's record of our wrongs. But Colossians says that when Jesus died, he took that record of all of our wrongs and all of our guilt and he nailed it to the cross. So we gloried in the gospel from Daniel chapter 5. And then we came back and we talked more about Belshazzar's pride and how God brings down arrogance for the glory of God. Chapter 5, verse 23. The God in whose hand is your breath 
and whose are all your ways you have not honored. So we talked about God's glory and what that is and how God sometimes like knocks us down. Not to ruin us, but to rescue us from our, from our pride and bring us back to what our lives are really about. And then we paused for a Bible study lesson from Daniel 5. And if you were here for this, you probably remember it because it was really fun. There's so much historical stuff in that chapter. And so we talked about the exact date of the party, the fulfillment of Jeremiah's 70 years. We talked about the cynics who said Belshazzar's made up. He never existed until all this archaeological evidence proved him wrong. And we talked about the location of Belshazzar's party. Remember the pictures from the excavations there and how we probably have probably excavated actually the actual room where this party was held in uh, the palace in Babylon. And then last of all, we talked about the queen. And even though, and though, though it's impossible to know exactly who she was, the very best guesses are that she was either Nebuchadnezzar's wife or daughter. And based on what she does there, it's very possible that she had actually come to know and love the God of Israel too, uh, which is an awesome little capstone on the Nebuchadnezzar's, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's story. All right, there we go. We made it through the first five chapters. Breathe again. That brings us to chapter 6. Chapter 5 was the last night of the Babylonian Empire. Chapter 6 moves the story ahead just a little bit, maybe a year or two, into the reign of the first Persian ruler of Babylon. He's called Darius, um, and I tend to think that he was a governor whom Cyrus appointed over the region of Babylon. Daniel's in his 80s, but Cyrus saw somebody who could help him in his new government, or Darius saw him as somebody who could help him in his new government. And soon Daniel rose to the top of the new government and had lots of people jealous of him. And so they, they tricked Darius into making a law that would trap Daniel when he prayed. Um, but Daniel prayed anyways. And what a beautiful thing that was to talk about. How he had been there in Babylon trusting God for seven decades. Praying for seven decades. And so when they made a law that he couldn't pray, there wasn't a chance in the world. So just to me, just imagining 80-something-year-old Daniel getting down on his creaky knees when there's a law out to get him. It's like, you're not going to stop me from praying by anything. Uh, it's, it's awesome. So that was Sermon 20. Um, and then Sermon 21 was called When Christians Are Made Criminals. And we talked about the way they used the law to trap Daniel and how the world tries to trap and vilify Christians. Because of our biblical convictions, Daniel 6 is incredibly relevant for the time that we live in. And then we talked about, and, and so because we live in those times, we need Sermon 22. What we need is courageous conviction and faith-filled confidence as we navigate difficult decisions and in, in the world's trying to trap us. So we need to communicate to the world that God is the highest authority in our lives. Our Christian faith actually changes how we live, and we are not ashamed of Christ. All right, so that brought us to the end of chapter 6, which brings us to the end of the first half of Daniel. And the rest of the book, chapters 7 through 12, records four visions that God gave to Daniel. So there are five total, right? Five big revelations, one in chapter 2, four in the second half of the book. Chapter 7 about the four beasts, chapter 8 about the ram and the goat, chapter 9 about the 70 weeks, and then chapters 10 through 12 about horrible rulers and a time of unprecedented trouble. So chapter 7 introduces two huge themes. And it's actually three. I'll have you add one a little bit later, but for now, two. 
Remember, the vision in Daniel 7 is four beasts that come up out of the sea, four beastly empires, same empires as back in chapter 2. And in the fourth beast, Daniel sees a terrible ruler who makes war against the saints. So here's a huge theme, a terrible final ruler who's in power at the end when the stone kingdom smashes everything and fills the world. And the second huge theme is the terrible treatment that God's people would receive as they lived in the world's changing empires. So we see those two big themes that show up over and over again later in the book start in Daniel 7. And so we talked about, first of all, the comfort of judgment. When you live in a world full of beastly empires like that, you've got to understand that the doctrine of God's judgment is actually comforting for his people. And so there's that judgment courtroom, ancient of days in Daniel 7. But not just that, the courtroom's also a throne room. So number 24, there's also the coronation of the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So we rejoiced in who Jesus is, man and God, the one worthy king, in a world full of monsters, beastly empires and rulers, Jesus in all his glory is what we need to see, just like we talked about this sermon this morning. Okay, so by that point in Daniel 7, we should be able to have in mind a basic framework, the kind of the story of human history. And if we have this basic framework in mind, we're really doing a great job of grasping the whole point of the book of Daniel. Human history will be the story of earthly kingdoms, one after another, like beasts, who tend to be power-hungry and arrogant and often persecute God's people, but they always end up getting replaced by another one. They're always temporary. That leads up to final empires and a final terrible ruler who horribly persecutes God's people, but is judged and defeated by God, and then King Jesus reigns as King of Kings, and all the other kingdoms are per pulverized by the stone kingdom, which fills the earth forever. That's the, basic, that's the basic point of all of Daniel. Four kingdoms, which encompass all the kingdoms, leading up to a terrible final ruler, judgment, King Jesus, his kingdom forever. That's, that's the point. Then we had a lesson on why Daniel is challenging. And basically we talked about that framework, like kingdom, 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 and then the kingdom of God. And we talked about how that framework is used over and over and over again in Daniel, and it's taught about in lots of different ways. And so it, Daniel's challenging because there's all this collating going on. How does chapter 7 fit with chapter 8, and how does that fit with chapter 9, and, and, and so forth? So we talked about that. And we had a great big chart, which you'll remember if you were here. Um, and then number 26 is that third big theme that is introduced in Daniel 7, and that is that the saints possess the kingdom. And I won't take the time to read those verses right now, but incredible theme. We saw how it stretches from Genesis to Revelation. In Christ, the saints possess the kingdom. And so Hebrews says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So we've got to add that to our framework, right? Human history will be the story of earthly kingdoms, one after another, like beasts who tend to be power hungry and arrogant and persecute God's people, but always end up getting replaced by another one leading up to a final terrible ruler 
who horribly persecutes God's people, but is judged and defeated by God, and King Jesus reigns as King of Kings, the stone kingdom pulverizes all the others, and the saints possess the kingdom forever. That's, that's Daniel. Now we come to Daniel 8. This is a new vision. So Daniel 7, the vision was four beasts leading up to one final terrible ruler. Daniel 8, the vision is of two beasts leading up to one final terrible ruler. And those two beasts are a ram and a goat. They represent the rise and fall of the Persian Empire, the rise of the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great. It's incredible predictive prophecy. Alexander the Great, and then, but ultimately what it's getting to is the Greek ruler, Antiochus IV, in the one, about 170 years before Jesus. So it's incredible that God revealed all this human history to Daniel before it happened, including Alexander the Great. But the real point of it is to get to Antiochus IV because he horribly oppressed the Jewish people, set up the abomination of desolation in the temple in Jerusalem. And so part of what God was doing through Daniel was getting the Jews ready for that horrible time under Antiochus IV. But he wasn't just getting the Jews ready for that. He was getting all of us ready for that, for, for all the terrible rulers along the way and getting human history ready for that final terrible ruler. Because as you see in your notes, Antiochus IV is the closest thing history has ever seen to what the terrifying final ruler who was introduced in chapter 7 will be like. He's like a lens we can use to look ahead and get a glimpse of what that ruler will be like. Then we had a Bible study where we talked about the other things the Bible says about that terrible final ruler who's often called the Antichrist. And we won't talk about that right now. Then, starting with Sermon 28, we got into chapter 9. So, Daniel 7, the vision is four beasts leading up to one final ruler. Daniel 8, the vision is two beasts leading up to one final terrible ruler. Daniel 9, the vision is 77s leading up to one final terrible ruler. I think there's a pattern. And what's going on here? But the vision in chapter 9 is not how the chapter begins. Chapter 9 begins with Daniel reading in the book of Jeremiah about the 70 years of exile and realizing this is coming to an end. And so there's this beautiful prayer of repentance and hope in Daniel 9. And that's uh, Sermon 28. And while he was praying, God sent the angel Gabriel, who shows up, with a message for him, which is about 77s. So there had been 70 years for Israel's exile in Babylon, but that exile had not turned Israel's hearts to God. So God decreed 70 more sevens to accomplish all of his purposes for his people. So basically, Daniel looked out at the world and he looked out at the Jewish people and he cried and he prayed and he said, God, what are you going to do? And God said, well, I'm going to make everything right. But not just in 70 years, in 77s, I'm going to make everything right. In a sense, that was discouraging. It was going to take a lot more than 70 years. But there was good news because God promised that at the end of the 77s, everything was going to be right. And this pointed ahead to Jesus because God said that he would finish transgressions, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, and then finally bring in everlasting righteousness at the end of the 77s. 69 of the sevens lead up to Jesus. Christians disagree tremendously about the 70th seven. Um, I think the 70th seven didn't happen in the first century. We're still waiting for it when 
Jesus, uh, leading up to when Jesus comes again. Because in the 70th seven, the final terrible ruler is defeated and everlasting righteousness is brought in. So that raises huge questions, 77s of what? What's this time frame? It's almost certainly 77s of years or 490 years. When do they start? It gets really, really complicated. But what I taught is that the first 69 sevens or 483 years were completed by the first coming of Christ. And you can calculate those 483 several different ways, but they work out, they lead you to Jesus remarkably. From the time of Daniel to the time of Jesus, the math works out remarkably well. But the 70th seven, I don't think happened right after the 69th. I don't think it happened in the seven years after Jesus died and rose again, or even later in the first century. We're still waiting for everlasting righteousness to be brought in. So you think you see on your notes there, like Antiochus helped us understand what the final terrible ruler will be like. So the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century helps us understand what the final terrible assault on Jerusalem will be like. So I believe that 69 of Daniel's 70 weeks have passed, but we're still waiting for that 70th week for the final terrible ruler, for the final assault on God's people, for the return of Christ and the stone kingdom that fills the whole earth in everlasting righteousness. So that's your framework. Did I put it on your handout? That little framework paragraph, is it on there? Next, human history will be the story of one earthly kingdom after another. Ah, okay, well, sorry. But that's the, that's, the, that's the point, so I'll say it one more time. Human history will be the story of one earthly kingdom after another, and they'll be beastly. They'll be terrible most of the time. And the rulers will tend to be power-hungry and arrogant, and they will often try to persecute the people of God. But those kingdoms will all be temporary. They'll all get replaced by other kingdoms. And that will lead up to a final terrible ruler who will horribly persecute God's people, but be judged and defeated by God. And King Jesus will reign as King of Kings in the stone kingdom that pulverizes all the others and fills the earth. And the saints will possess the kingdom forever. And so no matter where we live on that timeline, and no matter what kind of earthly kingdom we live under, the purpose of the book of Daniel is to guide, comfort, and prepare the people of God as they live under the world's political powers until Jesus comes again.